Each and every day, we touch and eat things, often without giving it a second thought. We hold on to the handrail, walking down the stairs to catch a subway train. We top a cup of pudding with a little Cool Whip. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're talking with folks who've actually given a lot of thought to what we touch and eat, from subway turnstiles to spray cheese. We begin in the underground. Chris Mason is a geneticist at the Weill Cornell Medical Center. He and a team of research assistants collected DNA throughout the New York City subway system to identify germs. Dr. Mason is on the phone with us this morning to talk about their findings. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I read that this is the first genetic profile of a metropolitan transit system. Is that correct? That's right. This is basically kind of like a Google Maps of DNA where you can zoom in and out of the city to get essentially a new way to track and classify both good and bad microbes and DNA that's all around us. What inspired this study? So the original inspiration actually came the first time I dropped my daughter off at daycare and saw that she was actually taking toys and putting them in in her mouth, and then she would set it down, and then the next kid would do the same thing and put it in his mouth, and then all the kids were basically sharing all their toys and sharing their microbes. And I actually was, at the thought of it was I wanted to sort of swab her mouth when I dropped her off, and then again at the end of the day and see what had changed, because we know that things are changing, but there's never been a real molecular map of what changes on surfaces um, either at daycares, let alone anywhere else. And I so, guess that's what happens when your dad's a geneticist, huh? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, you know, and then when I started riding the subway with her on the way to school, now that she's older, she's four now, uh, you know, two years ago, it really just you know, hit me. I said, you know, we, tens of thousands of people are touching the subway every day, and, and we're all sharing this communal space, but we have very little molecular knowledge of what's there. So it was really a lot of it just pure curiosity. So how did you go about swabbing the New York City subway system? So we sort of had a phalanx of students swarm the subway system, uh, students of all kinds, so med students, grad students, undergraduates, uh, some postdocs. We had uh, public health students, a mixture of, you know, a lot of, some of it was volunteers, some of it was uh, citizen scientists going down with sort of nylon swabs, and they would uh, rub a surface, whether it was a turnstile, a kiosk, or a bench, or a railing, for about three minutes and collect enough DNA and bring it back to the lab, extract the DNA from the swab, and then we'd sequence it with high-throughput sequencing. How much of the system did you swab? So we did all of the all 468 subway stations, all of them done in triplicate across the entire New York City subway. We live in an age where we're told if you see something, say something. Did anyone ever call the cops <laughs> on you because what you were doing looked suspicious? We, it's amazing how the vast majority of the time, New Yorkers are a pretty uh, robust bunch. They would just see someone swabbing something and think, meh, and then keep walking. But we had one person who actually did stop one of my students and said, what are you doing? And then he gave him, we, everyone had a little note card of saying what the project was and that they're from Wild Cornell and what they're doing. Uh, and only one time they said, you know, they, they were too alarmed and, and wanted them to leave. But that was only once out of uh, essentially thousands of swabs. Did you have to inform the MTA of your goings on? Yes, so we you know, let them know uh, about the research plan and have been sharing even all of the raw data and the process data. We, um, you know, we've, we've been trying to be very transparent about the project. We have a Twitter feed. We have a website. It's all, you know, all of the data and all the methods in the project is online. So we've been you know, even sharing the draft of the manuscripts with them before they come out. Let's delve into your findings. What did you discover in the subway system? So there's three key things, I think, that we found that, are, to me, are really interesting and impressive and surprising even. So the first thing is that 48% of the DNA that we sequenced uh, doesn't match any known organisms. So essentially, it's a world of discovery right under our fingertips. 
The second thing is that actually there's a what we call a molecular echo that can persist. And so this means that in the station that was flooded by Hurricane Sandy, we can still see essentially this echo of it being a marine-related bacteria or that it was flooded. Uh, and the third thing that's interesting is that even the human DNA that's left behind can match the U.S. census data. So we can actually tell if a station is primarily trafficked by different people from, from the census, like white, black, Asian, Hispanic. Hmm. We can actually see that from the human DNA left behind, as well as what people were eating and what they were doing. What kinds of things are people eating? What are they doing? <laughs> right. So there's been some, uh, I even had one person say, it sounds like there's lots of microscopic pizzas that are in the subway system because we found... Uh, some species of bacteria that are associated with a, a mozzarella cheese, so an Enterococcus italicus, which is, you'll find that a lot in mozzarella cheese. And so we think it is the likely source of it, since it's New York City, is probably pizza. So we think uh, we see evidence of those bacteria plus other bacteria associated with kimchi or other foods that you might find, uh, you know, in, in, in delis. And so we even see things like cucumbers and chickpea DNA. So we see DNA that essentially becomes an echo of what it is that people are doing or eating. When you add it all up, how many types of life forms did you find? So uh, the high-confidence life forms, only about 637 that we found in the study, but of things that we have at least some evidence for, of, of you know that we essentially we take a piece of DNA and we look against the library of all known uh, bacteria, viruses, uh, animals, plants, fungi, anything that's ever been known to humankind, we see as many as 15,000 potential species that were found. What was the most unusual bacteria that you found? I guess the one that I thought was most um, you know surprising was the you know the these really these Antarctic bacteria that had previously only been seen in Antarctica and now were showing up on the walls of the South Ferry Station, which was flooded by the hurricane. So it seems that a lot of times what we think of is something that's a bacteria that's only from one place or, or even originally from one place um, can be in the water and show up elsewhere. And so I think that was one thing I was surprised at. Nothing that you've talked about so far I find particularly alarming, but what did you find that could be harmful to people? You know, there were some bacteria, as we mentioned in the paper, that only uh, about 12% of the bacteria could be potentially considered uh, pathogens in the sense that they're associated with human disease. And so, you know, some of the things that were potential pathogens we found that were there include fragments of the DNA of, of, of normal, what are called plasmids, which are these sort of a piece of the bacteria that are associated with those potential pathogens. Uh, and so we did find some evidence uh, of, of both antibiotic resistance bacteria and as well as potential pathogens. But I want to definitely underscore is that we have no evidence that they're alive nor that they're dangerous because no one's coming down with a lot of the diseases that we found pathogens that could be associated with it. Uh, and that's mainly because bacteria can often look a lot like each other or even carry pieces of DNA from a different bacteria and bring it with them. And so, you know, there's a big leap to go from saying we see fragments of DNA to saying that there's actual pathogens. And so we just say, um, you know, that we, we find evidence of them, of their DNA being present, but we don't want to alarm people of what's there. I've read that you found bacteria that could lead to bubonic plague, huh? Yeah, so that's the, one of the plasmids that we found in the paper that has uh, a, a piece of a DNA that's often found with uh, Yersinia pestis, which is uh, which can is associated with the plague. So, you know, this, this um, has caused some people to be alarmed, but I think the most important fact is that you know, really, the last case of bubonic plague that happened uh, was in 2002 in New York City, and that was someone who probably brought it with them. That's a couple. They brought it with them probably from New Mexico because really, you know, Yersinia pestis or, or the plague, you won't find any cases of it really um, 
really further east of the Mississippi. It's just it's almost never been seen uh, east of the Mississippi. It really is something that you'll see in the West, about seven cases per year. So you're not recommending that we go down into the subway wearing face masks and rubber gloves? That's right. That's right. I think actually the most amazing thing is that even... Even if you think about what you touch on a surface and you think, oh, what am I touching? And is it still warm? And is the, is the pole, you know, somehow something was sticky there and people get anxious? Or some people are just anxious anyway to ride anything in public. But you know, what that means really is that 90% of the bacteria, nine times out of ten, any bacteria that you grab uh, will very likely not get you sick. And anything that we did find that could maybe in any circumstance get you sick was present at such low levels that there's no reason to be alarmed because it's not just about having a bacteria, it's about getting enough of it that would actually get you sick. And and also your skin and your immune system do a great job. So you would have to have a gaping wound and be immunocompromised uh, to really be concerned that you would get something from the subway. Did you find any examples of good bacteria, bacteria that's actually helping us? Yeah, so that's uh, one of the other big points of the study is that we see evidence of good bacteria in two specific ways. And one is we did find some uh, different types of pseudomonas bacteria, which are associated with being able to clean up toxins out of the environment. So in some ways, the bacteria represent a healthy ecosystem that might keep you safe so that it will clean up and, and soak up toxins before you ever get to the subway. So that's kind of an active form of, of a beneficial bacteria. But we also saw a second thing was that all these other bacteria that are not at all pathogenic, that are not harmless, that are not harmful, essentially they are harmless bacteria, they give you a benefit because they can outcompete any potential potential pathogen or potentially bad bacteria. So in that regard, you know, you really are surrounded by an, an army of microbial friends that are generally doing you good service. The New York City Health Department was a bit critical of your study. In a statement, a department spokesman said the interpretation of the results is flawed and you failed to offer alternative, much more plausible explanations for your findings. Did that surprise you? Uh, it, it did, because they had had access to all the raw data and also the manuscript before it got published. And so we, um, you know, we really wanted to be as open and transparent about the project and have been tweeting it and putting it on, on Facebook. And we've been very public about what we've been doing and sharing the data with everyone. All the data is public. And so, I mean, what's surprising to me, I think, is, is, is that these are very standard methods. And so we even posted uh, on a blog how anyone could take in five simple steps and get the exact same results that we got. So, so there's no question about the methodology. There's nothing we did that was uh, an error in the sense that these are standard tools and techniques and, and state-of-the-art techniques in the field that are used for classifying organisms. But the challenge is, as they allude to, is that you know, they, they want to have an extraordinarily high level of certainty before calling something as present, whereas we, we reported all of the data you know, as we see it, uh, as it came off you know, essentially are the algorithms and the machines. And so I think they, um, you know, we want to continue to be as open and transparent as possible about the project, sharing all of the data. Um, I think um, you know, the, the next big question would be, this is the largest study of its kind, so no one knew what to expect. And so if we do another 1,500 samples, you know, will we see the same thing? You know, that's the real mm-hmm. uh, challenge to the study is to actually have someone do something of this scale again, and no one has yet. So, so until that happens, uh, this is, as best of, as we know, what we found in the subway. What is your overall hope for a study like this? So the long-term goal is actually, you know, is really twofold. And this is, the first is pure discovery, which you described in the beginning, that half the DNA is unknown. So we have so much pure discovery left to do. Uh, It's like, you know, standing in front of a rainforest and being excited about all the species of plants and animals and other things you'll find. 
is that's the first goal. And the second one is to actually, once we have an, enough discovery and accuracy and really fine-tune the system, you know, you could imagine actually having a smart city, we like to call it, that you're building a city that is actually examining the ecosystem that surrounds us, making sure that the surfaces are sort of probiotic surfaces, where, you know, you'll see that these surfaces, we know that there is bacteria present all around us, but can we engineer the system to keep giving us more of those good bacteria that actually we know are, are already helping us uh, and, and engineer the system that way and then also be able to respond if we do see a threat to know that we have we have a sense of its scale because now that we have a baseline we can see how far it is removed from the baseline and then also we can react to it and know where it is in the city and so this kind of smart city is the long-term goal uh, it will help us kind of uh, really have a better aspects of public health of disease surveillance and also basic understanding of urban ecology chris thank you so much for your time thanks a lot Chris Mason is a geneticist at the Weill Cornell Medical Center. His research and findings can be found online at pathomap.org. That's P-A-T-H-O-M-A-P dot org. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. Next on Cityscape, an investigation of a different kind. Writer Patrick DeGesto took a good hard look at what's inside everyday products. His new book is called This Is What You Just Put In Your Mouth. Patrick is with us in the studio this morning. Patrick, hello. Hello. So I understand this all started with spray cheese. Yes, this started in uh, in a Super Bowl party in 2003. A friend of mine, who shall remain a nameless drunk, looked at a can of aerosol cheese, easy cheese, and inebriatedly wondered, what is inside this stuff we've been using all day? Uh, I wrote for Wired magazine at the time. I did a lot of infographics for them. And I realized this would be perfect to fit into the infographic format. Just look at the ingredient lists of just about anything we eat and break it out and explain what each one of them does. And then you got a regular segment for that, right? And and before long, we were doing it every single month, yes. Now here's the book. And here's the book that came out of it. About half the things in the book are previously published in Wired, and about half of them are brand new just for the book. All right. I will dare to ask... (laughs) What is in spray cheese? Believe it or not, it's cheese. A lot of people look at it and think this has got to be totally artificial. And it is partially artificial, but not totally. It's cheese. It is processed cheese, which means that it's the leftovers of many different types of cheese. Cheddar, Swiss, all that sort of stuff just blended together. It's kind of like the sausage of cheese, huh? Yes, almost (laughs) exactly. Very well put. Um, There's also an awful lot of vegetable oil added because you need to have it flow out of a nozzle and it needs to be moist to do that. The can itself, uh, the cheese is in a baggie inside the can and the rest of the can is filled with pressurized nitrogen. So the, the gas never touches the cheese itself. Just when you release the nozzle, it squeezes the bag and out comes this oily cheese. Outside of the spray cheese, how did you go about deciding what to investigate? A lot of it came from simply just going out food shopping and walking up and down the aisles and saying, hey, I don't know what's in Cool Whip and I don't know what's in Snossages and things like that. A lot of the time we would solicit it from friends, family, editors, even on the Internet. Uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson of the Hayden Planetarium uh, gave me the idea for doing power bars because hmm. he just wanted to know what's inside a power bar. Power bars have something called 
Chocolatey. It's not chocolate. It's chocolatey. Chocolatey. Exactly right. Yeah. The FDA has loads of legalistic definitions of, you know, in order for in order to call something cheese, it has to have this much milk products and so and so. Chocolate must be at least 51% cocoa butter and at least 12% cocoa solids. Anything else outside those tolerances, well, it looks brown and it tastes sort of like chocolate, but it's not legally chocolate, so it is chocolatey. How do you go about investigating what's truly inside these products? Again, to get legalistic, the ingredient list must contain an accurate representation of what's inside the product. However, you have things like artificial and natural flavorings, which is a, a, it's a collective of who knows what all that stuff is. So then I would go and talk to the company. At the very beginning, the companies were like, oh, sure, we'd love to talk about our products. Then they would go and read some of the old ones that I did, and they realized we do not want to get anywhere near this guy. Not necessarily because I, I raised a panic about how terrible these things are. I just told the truth sarcastically, and they didn't like it. That wasn't much of an improvement for them. Uh, so then you uh, just go and talk to uh professors, chemists, doctors, sometimes lawyers to, to get the legal aspects of it. But just, just never stop researching this until you find out what's inside all these products. What product surprised you most, Patrick? Eggnog. For the simple fact that every glass of eggnog you've drunk since 1981 has been illegal. Because, again, we talked about legal definitions. Mm -hmm. Eggnog has its own legal definition, and it must not contain yellow food coloring because that would make it look like there's too much eggs in it, and that would be fraud, and that would be misleading, and that's wrong. Now, you go to the store, and you look at the different canisters of eggnog on the shelf. Almost every single one of them contains yellow food coloring. And you're like, well, what's the loophole here? Mm -hmm. It turns out this is a long, long, endless story of research and, and talking to lawyers and the National Archives. Eventually, we pieced it together. In 1981, the FDA said you must not put yellow food coloring into eggnog. Almost immediately, the dairy manufacturer said, we can't live like that. We need to put yellow food coloring in eggnog. So the FDA said, fine, we'll keep the law on the books, but we will not enforce it until we can hold a hearing on, you know, the proper use of yellow in eggnog. That was 1981. And we're still waiting for that hearing? The hearing has <laughs> never been held. I've spoken to people at the FDA who never knew there was supposed to be a hearing. Everyone who was at the FDA in 1981 is retired or dead. This hearing will never take place. Now, it, it sounds like it's all fun, you know, yellow food coloring and eggnog, no big deal. But what other foods have this arrangement where... On the books, it's perfectly safe, but in reality, that's not being enforced. We found this by accident, and how do you find the next one? By accident? You referenced Cool Whip earlier, yes. so I'll have to ask you, what is in Cool Whip? Cool Whip is probably the most artificial food that is on the shelves now. It was a, a, a wonderful example of 1960s food technology where, you know, like they thought we were going to eat like the Jetsons. We were going to eat artificial food in a pill. So they made Cool Whip, which is odd because it's not like there's a shortage of whipped cream in the world that, that you need to have artificial stuff for it. 
But no, it's simply a convenience food, and it's as if space aliens had the formula, the chemical formula for whipped cream, but had never actually tasted it. <laughs> and they just like tried to recreate the chemical formula for it, and there it is. So it contains you know, polysorbate 60 to keep the whip in the whipped cream. Uh, most of it is water and air. You're you're paying a lot of money for water and air. It is a pretty light cream. container, no exactly. question about that. And it's mostly about 41% water and air. Uh, the rest is chemicals, you know, chemicals that, that simulate the fat in cream, that simulate the proteins in cream, that simulate the flavor of, of cream. Lately, in the last couple of years, they've actually started to use milk products in Cool Whip, but still, there's no way that it is whipped cream. I'm going to rip a couple of questions right off the back cover of your book. What do a cup of coffee and cockroach pheromone have in common? Well, if you're a plant, you really don't have too many defenses against insects. You just sit there and the insects come and they eat you, unless you can develop chemical defenses. So coffee beans, uh, coffee plants, have developed a cockroach pheromone. It's like a hormone that almost perfectly uh, replicates the warning hormone that cockroaches give off when there's danger. So the uh, coffee plant sits there telling cockroaches, danger, danger, go away, don't eat me. And and that's how the, and then that winds up in your coffee. If I can't believe it's butter isn't butter, then what is it? It's fat and more fat and add another fat and then actual butter flavoring. That's what it is. That's all it is. It's vegetable oil. It is uh, the, the fat from buttermilk. It's a mixture of different vitamin A oils because every time you create something that is like a dairy product, it must have the vitamins of a dairy product. So you just mix those together and then add actual butter flavor, and there you have it. Can't believe so it's not butter. So is butter actually then better for you than I can't believe it's not butter? Well, the thing is the vegetable oils in I can't believe it's not butter have a better cholesterol profile for you. So as long as you don't mind, you know, not getting all your cholesterol, then yeah, yeah, I can't believe it's not butter is probably better for you than butter. Let's do a couple of true or false questions. Sure. So true or false, Slim Jims are alive. Slim Jims are alive. Yes. Uh, they are essentially, they don't, again, fit the FDA legal definition of sausages. They're very, very much like old-fashioned pepperoni or salami. So they are kept fresh by the use of lactic acid bacteria, the kind of stuff you might find in a yogurt container. That bacteria is infused throughout the Slim Jim to keep other bacteria away. Not so sure I want to eat a Slim Jim anymore. <laughs> well, if you eat yogurt, you I can guess. eat a Slim okay, Jim. Okay, yes. okay, let's just put it uh, out there in that way and it makes more sense. Yes. It's been years since I've had a Hostess lemon fruit pie. Am I missing <laughs> anything, Patrick? Uh, you're missing a lot of lemon, uh, actually. <laughs> Believe it or not, only about 7% of a Hostess fruit pie comes from lemon. The rest of it is wheat for the outer shell. An awful lot of hard fats, because any any good pastry cook knows, in order to get really delicate pastry, you have to use really heavy fats. So, I mean, this stuff is just, you know, solid fats in, in, in some areas. Uh, there's a lot of 
bacteria algae type gelatin inside the fruit pie and just about, you know, 6% lemon. Let me ask you this question. What happens when you combine salt, sugar, and fat? When you combine salt, sugar, and fat and take it into your body, you are essentially replicating the pleasure and addictive properties of cocaine. The three of those items together are like this unholy trinity that come together and light up, almost literally light up the same neurons in your brain that a jolt of cocaine does. And you find yourself wanting sugar, salt, and fat. You get such pleasure from it, you want it again. And that gives you more pleasure, so you want it again. It literally meets four of the seven criteria for an addictive substance. The snack food companies got us good, don't they? Oh, don't they? They know what we want. You also investigate what's in a flu shot, and you say this about a flu shot. It kills viruses with viruses and ignorance with knowledge. I hope. Yes. (laughs) It definitely kills viruses, and we hope it can kill ignorance once we've explained exactly what's inside a flu shot. A lot of people who are worried about flu shots, you could argue they're legitimately worried about the old kind of flu shots. They did contain microscopic amounts of mercury. Sometimes you could eat, if you eat, you know, a couple of cans of tuna fish, you might get more mercury than you would get from a flu shot. But even so, they don't make that sort of flu shot anymore. So you don't have to worry about mercury in your flu shot. Uh, All you have to do is worry if you'd want to worry. Many, many flu shots nowadays are made in chicken eggs. And if you happen to have a chicken egg allergy, you might get an allergic reaction to your flu shot. But it's not anything more than a chicken egg reaction. And if you don't have that allergy, you don't need to worry about it at all. Now, you include the flu shot in your section about this is what you just put in your mouth. That's actually, this is what you just put in your arm. Right, (laughs) what you put in your body. Yes, Yes. there we go. Which brings me to not all of the products featured in your book are foodstuffs or things that you will put in your body. The second half of your book is labeled, this is what you don't put in your mouth. Yes. Like fix a flat. Exactly. Well, we were doing this for Wired. We tried to alternate. One month it would be edible. The next month it would be non-edible. And one of the big ones is fix a flat. Uh, Pretty much everyone has got it in the trunk of their car. If you've been unlucky, you've had to use it. And this, you know, it's, it's an aerosol can that fixes and inflates your tire. How does that work? And it turns out it's liquefied rubber in the can. And it's under pressure. So as long as the pressure is not released, the rubber remains liquefied. Now, this is absolutely brilliant because the only way the rubber will solidify is if you use it to inflate a tire. So releasing that pressure inflates the tire as well as seals the hole in the tire. You drive around a bit to spread the liquid uh, liquid rubber. It solidifies. And bingo, you've got a tire again. Wow. How has putting this book together changed the way you operate as a consumer, Patrick? I used to be addicted to chewing gum. You wouldn't find me without chewing gum in my mouth. And then one day we go out shopping, and instead of getting the big box of chewing gum I always did, I didn't. My girlfriend instantly picked up on it. She said, what are you researching this month? And I said, chewing gum. So she realized there was something in there, and it turns out, 
I'd been chewing gum all my life, and it never bothered me about the rubber in chewing gum. But now that I know there's no scientific basis for it, it just creeps me out. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it. It just bothers me for some reason. So I, I've really cut down on my chewing gum. Have you received any angry emails, death threats from manufacturers? <laughs> Well, the good thing is that this book is so carefully researched and so carefully fact-checked and so carefully run past the lawyers that on the few occasions where we've actually had someone come to us after the story, they've quickly been dissuaded from doing anything. We have had people complain during the story as we were trying to get information from them when we were doing Doritos uh, I contacted Frito-Lay, which makes Doritos, who sent me up to their parent company, uh, PepsiCo, which owns Frito-Lay. And the people there just said, basically, we're not going to help you. Thank you very much. And about you know, a couple of weeks later, I called them back and said, the story is done. I'm just giving you a heads up. And they were furious. We said we weren't helping you. How dare you write a story about us? And I'm like, don't you people understand journalism? I have to do this now. The, the, the moment you said you weren't going to help, I had to continue. So they got furious while it was happening, but I just simply explained what we were doing, and they realized they had to let it go. Patrick DeGesto, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. That was Patrick DeGesto. His book, This Is What You Just Put In Your Mouth, From Eggnog to Beef Jerky, The Surprising Secrets of What's Inside Everyday Products, is out now from Random House. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUVHD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.